Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the public policy challenges facing the Asia-Pacific region. My name is Maya Bandari and I am taking over the podcasting reins from Martin and Sharon. Today we will be discussing a really important issue that has the potential to affect the lives of every Australian. It is something that I am super interested in and I am keen to get talking about it. But before we start, just a quick reminder that as always, we are really interested in getting your thoughts and feedback. You can contact us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society, or on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, or our email is podcast at policyforum.net. At the end of last year, Australian Prime Minister Turnbull announced that there would be a huge restructuring of Australia's intelligence and security agencies. It would see the creation of a new super department of home affairs, headed by a minister for home affairs. At the same time of this announcement, there was an independent intelligence review looking at the effectiveness of Australia's intelligence agencies. Although these are two different events, they reflect a big reorganisation of Australia's security and defence arrangements. Today we'll be talking about a new Department of Home Affairs and the 2017 Independent Intelligence Review and what effect these changes will have on Australia's defence and security. Joined with me today are three leading experts on national security will be able to shed some light on these challenges and issues. So let me just introduce you all. So today we've got Professor John Blacksand from the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre. How are you going? Thanks for having us on the program, Maya. No problem at all. We've got Dr Andrew Davies, who was a director at ASPE and is now teaching Intelligence and Security Studies at the ANU. Hello, Maya. Hi, Andrew. And we've got Jacinta Carroll from the National Security College. Great to be with you, Maya. Thank you. All right, so today we'll be talking about the new Department of Home Affairs and the 2017 Independent Intelligence Review and basically what effect these changes will have on Australia's defence and security. Um, so basically to get things going and to start off with, what is so significant about the creation of this mega Department of Home Affairs? Like why is this all happening? It's a very big question. I might just start because we'll we'll all have some slightly different views about it. One of the things that is quite controversial about home affairs is that um, this appeared to come from a political decision rather than than reviews. And very interestingly, it was announced at the same time as the outcomes of a known um, significant and regular review, the independent intelligence review was announced. So some of the issues are the uh, high profile nature of the uh, minister uh, and also the secretary um, of home affairs and the fact that this is happening at the same time as uh, developing a range of other mechanisms that came out of a more standard review. So the the um, independent intelligence review called for the creation of an office of national intelligence, a range of issues around that and how intelligence agencies would work together and that there was an announcement for 
a new agency that would seem to be in some ways overlapping with this more considered review and development. Yeah, so basically they've put on um, the creation of Department of Home Affairs over the top of the intelligence review. Well, in parallel with and with less information. So the announcement was made and then the work commenced. Uh, so a, a different way around from the review of the um, the, the intelligence community uh, and a, a consider, consideration by government and then work to be done. Jacinta's being very polite. <laughs> um, the Department of Home Affairs was established as a surprise, a big surprise, and it happened despite the fact that previous reviews of counterterrorism, of intelligence, had actually not recommended this outcome. And, and a review of Homeland Security done by Rick Smith, mm. um, former Secretary of Defence, that specifically asked this question um, after 9-11. And, and I think one of the best indicators that it was political uh, was that there's no clear answer to the question, what problem does it solve? Mm. Uh, bearing in mind that Australia has, until this year, had probably the world's most sophisticated and able counterterrorism and intelligence support arrangements of any country. We have remarkably, uh, you know, touch wood, been very, very successful at nipping in the bud potential terrorist incidents to a degree that is the envy of the world. Uh, and that is because of a network of arrangements, relationships and uh, informal and formal networks that have emerged as a consequence of intelligence reviews, uh, protective security reviews and other rev home, home affairs reviews and things that have pointed to incremental reform. Incremental reform that has actually generated a set of sinews, if you like, connecting various state and federal bodies to work collaboratively and effectively collegially with each other. So no one agency's been in charge, but what we've had is a network of organisations where to, to make the system work, comp the components have had to be respectful and collegial rather than simply following the orders of a central hierarchy. So I've got a slightly different spin on that because have, looking closely at counterterrorism as I do, I agree with John in terms of the capability of our agencies and how well they work together. But one thing that we've lacked in the counterterrorism space specifically and the national security space more generally is an agency that's actually responsible at a strategic level for directing strategy. Mm. Um, as we look across the agencies, we have police in uh, the various states and territories. We have this federal police at the Commonwealth level, ASIO, and a range of others that have a part-time involvement in countering terrorism. And as John said, and I absolutely agree, at the operational level, they work really well together. But it's never been the job of a central agency or a minister to set Australia's national security interests at a strategic level and say, here's what we're going to do and how we'll prosecute it to bring all these pieces together. So we do need that strategy. And I would be looking for the Home Affairs Department to be producing that strategic direction uh, for national interest uh, in the way that defence does in terms of having a defence white paper and a focus on how defence capability strategically will uh, serve the Australian national interest and the way that the Foreign Affairs Department does for our foreign policy. So it does fit a nice uh, trinity of uh, key central agencies directing strategy potentially. Uh, one of the concerns is that at the moment it seems um, 
only focused on national security, whereas that could be there could be a broader project and particularly one that brings um, more focus on the state and territory involvement as well, which traditionally former Australian Home Affairs Departments had been focused on, uh, that, that regional focus and how the Commonwealth works together. So are there any like actual coordination mechanisms put in place for all of these agencies to work together? Because the Department of Home Affairs will have the Border Force, Austrac, the um, Intelligence Crime Commission, ACIC, um, the AFP and ASIO all together. So is there anything that is binding it together other than just this name of a department? Well, um, organisationally, the Department of Home Affairs has a large chunk of what is now considered the national intelligence community. But still the majority of it is actually outside of the Department of Home Affairs. And that was meant to be all wrapped up under the a new construct that was recommended by the Intelligence Review last year uh, under the Director General of Office of National Intelligence, uh, which was supposed to be an organisation that expanded the remit uh, for intelligence oversight from the six agencies in the Australian intelligence community, namely the Office of National Assessments, uh, ASIO itself, the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, Australian Secret Intelligence Service, ASIS, uh, the uh, Australian Signals Directorate, ASD, the Defence Intelligence Organisation, DIO, and the Australian Geospatial Intelligence Organisation, AGO. They were the six kind of core AIC, Australian Intelligence Community uh, bodies that have been expanded, were, were meant to be expanded as part of the Intelligence Review to include um, Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission, uh, Austrac, Australian Border Force and Federal Police and um, and uh, so that was meant to be the plan, to expand that to 10 with a remit for, to fit under the Director General of National Intelligence, uh, now Nick Warner, been designated Nick Warner, former head of ASIS. Um, but the arrangement that has – one of the reasons why I'm concerned about the, uh, the new arrangement is that the new construct has some of them working to the Home Affairs Minister and the majority of them not. And the relationship between the DGONI and the Secretary of the Department of Home Affairs is actually not articulated in any report and not yet uh, completely nailed down. And the ambiguity that comes from and the uncertainty that comes from this uh, pretty opaque arrangement at the moment, in my view, opens us up to vulnerabilities. Uh, the uncertainty of the arrangements that were, that were pretty robust, as I say, lots of sinews connecting dots everywhere, that was actually made for a robust set of mechanisms, a little bit unusual but historically understandable, um, being now le it's left us all with a kind of vacuum uh, maybe not a vacuum, but certainly considerable uncertainty about the mechanisms that will come into place from July. I think there's another issue there too. When, when you say that ASIO will come under Home Affairs, yes and no. I mean, ASIO is a statutory body. It's supposed to be independent of government. Mm. So I think the, the, the very question of where ASIO will get its direction from um, is a very serious one. Um, if ASIO was to become more of an arm of the executive government rather than serving the Australian people and the parliament more broadly as a statutory body, I think that would be a great concern. 
and and that's you know you you raise a very good point, Andrew. Um, ASIO's uh, oversight mechanisms have evolved. Uh, and they've been t- tried and tested through royal commissions and have merged to be, I would consider it to be quite robust. There is uh, tried and tested mechanisms for accountability, for oversight, for audit that have um, proven themselves to be quite, quite strong in the last decade or so. And will these mechanisms be continued even though they're moving away from the Attorney General's department to the Minister, Ministry of Home Affairs? Well, it's actually not clear. And one of the things that is um, uh, most interesting uh, and uh, it's underscored by, as John mentioned, the Royal Commissions is the role that the Director General of Security has as an independent assessor of the state of Australia's security and having the authority to make intelligence judgments that are separate um, and independent of any other executive power. So one very interesting thing, it it's occasionally comes to public um, attention when we have uh, things such as assessments made about security suitability or immigration matters and citizenship, um, foreign interference, and most famously, um, asserting the level of terrorist threat to Australia. So the Director-General of Security is the authority that determines that, no one else in government. So one of the interesting things is how does that um, that authority to make an intelligence assessment separate from any direction from government or any other authority fit in? And, and because quite often that then has an impact on uh, actions that may be taken against individuals, um, whether someone is considered to be a, a terrorist, whether whether um, organisations are considered to be terrorist organisations and, again, citizenship and visas and so on. So it remains to be seen how the Director-General Security's role plays out. Um, an interesting reference in terms of something that's significant in Australia's security architecture is the creation of the Defence Department more than 40 years ago. And I'm sitting with two people who are expert on this and the, the history of this. And What's interesting when we compare compare that is that 40 years ago, separate services with very particular authorities were brought in together. And I'd say that 40 years later, there's still there's still a little bit of storming and norming <laughs> going on there. Uh, but one thing that that has happened is that authorities have come in under the the leadership at the head of that agency and under the ministerial um, direction. So. As we work through these machinations, and I'm a bit glass half full, I think there is a really good role that Home Affairs Department can play, particularly at that strategic level, but really keeping a focus on who is the competent authority to make um, decisions in relation to security and how do we keep an appropriate balance between authorities and powers in this very sensitive area. And um, John's written about this and researched extensively. The arrangements that we have had um, with, with the Attorney General and uh, signing warrants and ministerial authorizations has worked well. Um, I believe that that can move into another environment um, just as that will work just as well as the Attorney General, but we really have to keep a, a close eye on those balances because in the national security space, we're talking about intrusive methods being used against Australians, and that is very, very different to normal policing or even military operations overseas. Uh, so having that that accountability, independent assessment and oversight is very important. Um, I'll make two other really quick points uh, that I think we, we might go into a bit further. And one is about um, how we ensure that capability development is 
balanced across all of these agencies. Um, the ONI, it, it got missed in a lot of the media reporting, uh, but one of the key findings of the Independent Intelligence Review was the need for intelligence agencies to be developing the same kinds of technical capability uh, for efficiency reasons, but also so they could share information and intelligence appropriately. And this is a key role of the Director General of National Intelligence it's not clear how this will actually match up against the very significant technical capabilities being developed under the Home Affairs portfolio and the Director-General's role as being the advisor to the Prime Minister, and this was endorsed by government, the advisor on the overall state of Australia's intelligence resources and capabilities. We now have another source potentially of advice and responsibility in that area, and I, I just haven't seen... Uh, as yet, consideration on how that will work, but I, I do expect that that will be worked through. Well, I, yes, <laughs> all of that, um, but I, I just want to go back just a step. When you say that uh, ASIO used to belong to the Attorney-General, well, actually no, only for administrative purposes, because ASIO is a statutory body. Um, the Attorney-General didn't own ASIO in the sense that it couldn't direct them to do things. Um, the Attorney-General was part of the oversight mechanism for ASIO, having to sign off authorisations. Given some of the personalities at high levels in the Home Affairs portfolio, it's not at all clear that that degree of independence will continue. I guess just on that personality comment, um, how much do you think all of this is just about politics and about power rather than about Australia's national security and what is best for Australia? Well, I think if we look at what's actually transpired, it speaks volumes. As Jacinta mentioned at the start, the intelligence review that came out last year was a considered, reasonable, detailed examination of the intelligence community and mechanisms that needed to be adjusted or uh, improved to ensure that Australia is remain secure and protected as best as possible and informed on the threats. That, that review did not have a remit to consider the establishment of a Home Affairs Department and it was meant to have the full list of 10 uh, agencies in the national intelligence community responsible to the Director-General ONI. Now, half of them are falling under the, the Department of Home Affairs uh, that the arrangement is not spelled out. And in fact, when the Prime Minister made the announcement that the Home Affairs Department was going to be uh, created. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There was no articulation of what that meant. There was no detailed report saying what the division of responsibilities would be, how the differences would be managed, how the overlap between the Director-General ONI and the Secretary of the Department of Home Affairs would be managed. Uh, and that still is a, a matter for some debate, I understand. So we, the fact that this was plonked on top of the intelligence review m speaks volumes about the rigour of the process 
uh, and if the, the lack of rigour, I should say, of the process. And, of course, we, you know, I, I, I'm not by nature somebody who, who, who likes to see things in conspiratorial terms. <laughs> I find more often than not when you look at conspiracies, they're more often they're a, a stuff-up than a, than a conspiracy. Um, you get ham-fisted efforts by people trying to do something they think is the right idea and effectively cocking it up along the way. Yes, never invoke conspiracy when incompetence does as a... And, explanation. And, and I think in this case it certainly uh, stands on its own two feet. Yes. And we're already seeing some tensions arising. Home affairs with its domestic, very domestic focus. Um, the the uh, tension that we've seen this week with the reporting about home affairs wanting a foreign intelligence collector to play a greater domestic role. Um, and as John says, where there's no clear lines of control of the various elements of the AIC. So you have ASIO that has a strong domestic remit and ASD that doesn't. And Home Affairs is sort of trying to, apparently, lobbying to have both agencies working a domestic problem. Mm. And, and one thing we need to remember, the mechanisms we have in place are the consequence of considered reforms along the way. The Intelligence Services Act that was introduced in 2001... And two royal commissions. And two royal commissions preceding it, set up mechanisms that leave uh, organisations like AS3, the Australian Signals Directorate, with quite onerous uh, requirements for accountability. For the, for, so to get a warrant to eavesdrop on somebody requires an extraordinary amount of paperwork and the minister signing off agreeing that this is appropriate with a time limit and on the method, on the nature of the, of, the, of, the, of the prosecution to be conducted and the time frame. That, to get that, uh, that is then on the minister's shoulders. The minister is responsible for that. And, the, and then the agency, the Australian Signals Director, is responsible to backbrief the minister on the outcomes of the warrant. Just on that, um, we had a listener question from Twitter by mm. Digby Howis about the ASD and the sort of remit problems. Um, so I say, Digby wrote some great questions. Yes, yeah, so quite a few. So this is just <laughs> one of them. Um, it's a little bit long, so bear with me. Um, so recent news reports detailed changes to ASD authorities, in particular the monitoring of Australians, but it doesn't mention on Australian soil, which would be ASIO's remit. So if so, what are the merits of a US Pfizer-type agreement in Australia to ensure judicial independence? So basically he's just asking about um, the ASD remit and... I guess this term of spying on Australian citizens and a citizen pri privacy. Well, I'll start with the remark that the Pfizer arrangements in the United States comprehensively failed. Mm. And I think it's also just to follow up on Andrew's good point that uh, there are real limitations to drawing parallels from the American legal experience and Australia's mm. circumstances, which are constitutionally chalk and cheese very different uh, arrangements. So we are, let's not forget, a federal bicameral Westminster constitutional democracy. We are not the US congressional presidential system where the, the, the separation of powers is quite different. It's quite differently arranged to the, the, the way it is in Australia. 
So looking to the United States for the model to be applied in Australia is fraught with difficulty, not just because of the very different constitutional models, but because of the scale of the model at work in the United States. This is a country that is far larger economically and demographically than Australia, and the models that that they have developed uh, are not at all an easy fit back in the Australian context. That links to the UK one, uh, which similarly has been talked about as an appropriate model. And I know um, a lot of people have shown interest in the UK, you know, uh, Home Secretary's uh, portfolio. And we need to remember that the United Kingdom is a unitary state. It is a small island that can be governed and is governed centrally from London. So all of the police bodies, all of the legislation is all from one place. That is not the case in Australia. Similarly, the, the, the Home Secretary's remit is one that has emerged, uh, it's an evolutionary process that's emerged over about a century in response to very different circumstances, particularly the Northern Ireland problem. And so to look to the British model to apply to uh, the Australian context, it really means we are looking to copy and then paste a model with all of the extraordinary range of sinews that have merged over a century and thinking, well, we can just plug that in and connect the arteries and everything will work okay. Um, that model, that, that's an ahistoric and constitutionally fraught way of looking at how you develop new models for Australia. And even at a, at a pragmatic level, and John and I were talking about this, we, we're in absolute agreement on this, the notion of borrowing a, a British home affairs model or a UK a, a US homeland security model is um, is concerning from a few points. One is, as, as John mentioned, just the historic arrangements and political arrangements that have led to those models in those countries and some that are just very pragmatic. Uh, the current arrangement for uh, the, the British home affairs um, portfolio management of intelligence agencies actually came from severe economic pressures of bringing together one budget. So a very particular circumstance in the British environment and then a range of others, including a domestic terrorism um, uh, issue that has for, for more than a century. So there are a range of matters there. But another is just really an understanding of what those models really are. Um, the Homeland Security one's a good example where um, there's a lot of discussion about the, the US Homeland Security model, but actually it's not what um, a, a simple understanding perhaps from the movies might suggest, um, to be prosaic about it. It, it. The Department of Homeland Security in the US does not direct counterterrorism operations or drive counterterrorism strategy. Uh, actually, the agencies that are under that remit um, obviously don't include the CIA, the FBI and others. Um, but the agencies that are in uh, Homeland Security look very, and the functions that are responsible of Homeland Security uh, look very much like those actions, those immigration, uh, visa, customs responsibilities that were under the former Department of Immigration and Border Protection. Uh, so uh, I, th I think there's kind of a shorthand about what we think those agencies do in those countries that isn't actually what they do firstly. And secondly, as John's correctly pointed out, the political um, makeup of those countries does not look like Australia. I mean, the UK Home Affairs um, Office and uh, function is actively reviewed and changed in that context, uh, but doesn't uh, apply to a federal system. I mean, yeah, in Australia, so the first responders are... 
uh, states and territories and they actually have the jurisdictional authority over security matters. So, yeah, we can't look to the UK and the US for an Australian model. No, and, and to go back to the question that we actually started with, yeah. um, ASD already has the ability to provide technical assistance to ASIO and the Australian Federal Police and the state police departments um, in their um, investigations. So it, it's not at all clear that there's a need for ASD to use its own capabilities domestically. And I, in fact, I think that we should set the bar very high before we go down that particular path. It hasn't ended well in the US. Yeah, definitely. Um, and there was another listener question. Um, this one was emailed in by Derek Wheeler. Um, and his question is just, how much will the new super ministry cost to set up? And how will the expense be justified while Australia is in a so-called budget emergency? And surely there are more important things we could be spending taxpayer dollars on. Oh, I think Derek's missed a press release there. The budget emergency is over. Success has been declared. <laughs> the government has Mission more money than it expected. It can, it, it can fund home affairs. Yeah, and just on that, uh, my understanding is that the home affairs construct is premised in part at least on the idea that there will be efficiencies harvested from greater co coordination and... Uh, so we'll be uh, saving money. Uh, it, there's no question it will cost to set it up. But the, the idea is not so much to save money, but to use it more effectively and efficiently. Now, I think there is some merit to that argument from a pure bean counter point of view in terms of maximising the effectiveness of the dollar being spent. My concern really concerns... Uh, uh, oversight, accountability, and uh, contestability. And this is where I, I really think there is uh, a concern. We have developed oversight mechanisms going back to the Royal Commissions in the 70s and 80s that are pretty darned impressive. Uh, the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, uh, which has been set up with the enduring powers of a Royal Commissioner to go into the six intelligence agencies of the Australian intelligence community and asked to see any file on any computer at any time. It's extraordinary, that power. Now, that's being expanded to the 10, apparently. That was what the Intelligence Review recommended and the Prime Minister signed off on it. But how that will actually transpire with a, a, a new uh, departmental arrangement for home affairs is yet to uh, unfold. So accountability, it, it, there's some real question marks here about whether or not we are making a rod for our back and whether by reducing, by complicating accountability, we've made a problem. Uh, contestability is the other big one. Contestability, we have in the current system um, a degree of contestability between the, the, the views of agencies that has generated a healthy de debate at the National Security Committee of Cabinet on a wide spectrum of issues. The arrangement that is we're heading towards will reduce that contestability, I believe. Now, I've had people say, oh, no, no, John, everything will be fine. You know, we've got uh, that uh, ASIO is still going to provide free and frank, fair and frank advice and that the other bodies will, will, will uh, do, so, do as well. Uh, but you look at the line diagrams of the home affairs arrangement and you see uh, considerable imperatives for conformity uh, that I think are... Uh, Despite the fact we've got very, very good people in there, and I know, I actually, I've worked with a lot of them in the past in my previous incarnations. Um, I say tongue-in-cheek. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we they're good people, but organisationally they are being presented with a challenge where the contestability is no longer the coin of the realm. 
its conformity and its compliance with direction. And unfortunately, and it goes for the money as well, it's going to be very hard to undo any of this because a future government that says, no, actually, we don't like this homeland affairs or we think we're spending too much on this, then opens themselves up if something happens, a terrorist act happens, for example, then the opposition of the day has a field day. You know, the government, this is a government that cut back on national security and look what happened. So it's really hard to undo it. And also, you know, it's actually not only hard to undo, it's like unscrambling an egg. Uh, you know, once you've once we've committed to this, it will, as as Andrew, Andrew pointed out, it's potentially going to present considerable pitfalls. So we are on the cusp of being locked into an arrangement that we have to try and make the best of as best we can. But here's where I think that probably what is required now, I believe, is an articulation of what the new home affairs arrangements will be and how they will relate to the Office of National Intelligence and how. We, the Australian people, the voters, the taxpayers, can have confidence that that mechanism will be fair, that it will be transparent, it will be accountable and it will be auditable. Part of the issue will be just ensuring uh, uh, clarity about the ongoing roles of the statutory authorities. So uh, I haven't seen anything that suggests that the Director General of Securities, who heads ASIO, or that the uh, Commissioner of the Australian Federal Police wouldn't be able to be sitting uh, at the National Security Committee of Cabinet giving frank and fearless advice on their roles to the Prime Minister and others. And and I suppose that's part of the assurance about their roles and responsibility and access as, as the statutory authorities that would be sought to be maintained. Um, I, I do think it's a, um, as the others have said, there's no going back on this, but it actually will be a very long-term project. And I, I again, refer to the Defence Department experience where you've had 40 years and what we have now in the Defence Organisation is very different from what was set up 40 years ago when, I might add, there was a lot of debate about the personalities involved and whether that was an issue. Um, and our role is to set back from the personalities and the immediacy and say, well, how does this improve things? And really from a coordination perspective, uh, from strategic direction perspective, there's a lot of potential for this to be a very effective new arrangement, but it does need to have that clear direction and close scrutiny and review to ensure that it continues to head in the right direction, which will probably be something uh, a bit broader than just national security and counter-terrorism, but also ensuring there is contestable advice, uh, accountability and oversight. And at the moment, there are a variety of arrangements relating to the different agencies that fall under that portfolio. Yeah, so there's still a lot of challenges and a lot of decisions to be made. Um, but unfortunately, we are definitely running out of time at the moment. Um, but I really thank you all for coming in and I thank you for all of your insights. Um, it's a pleasure to speak to some really great leading experts on national security about this matter. So thank you all very thank much. Thank you, Maya. Thanks, thank Maya. You. Well, that was a really interesting and informative discussion from some leading experts on national security about the Department of Home Affairs. Um, I definitely think that these changes are going to be seriously really challenging for Australia as it tackles issues like terrorism and border security issues and there's going to be a lot going on in the future for Australia, so watch that space. Next week on the podcast, we'll be having another guest presenter. So joined with me today is Sean, who will be talking about his podcast. So how are you going, Sean? 
I'm going great. That's good. So tell me a bit about your podcast. What's it about? Sure. Um, recently, we have seen a drastic escalation of trade conflict between U.S. and China. The two countries has imposed billions of tariffs on each other, which covers like many major sectors of the economy, including agriculture, technology, and manufacturing. So um, next week, I'm going to invite Dr. Darren Lim from the College of Arts and Social Science of the ANU, who specializes in um, economic statecraft and economic policies to discuss with us on the U.S.-China conflict. So we're going to talk about um, the dynamics of the current conflict, um, so on which country is more likely to prevail, and what are the implications of the conflict on like the broader economy of other states. Wow, that's huge. Like a trade war between U.S. and China yeah, is going exciting. to be really interesting. Yeah. Um, so do you want our listeners to ask you any questions? Are you open to that? Sure, of course. Um, if you guys have any questions or comments, you can reach us by email or Twitter or Facebook. Yes, so if you have any questions, our email is podcast at policyforum.net. Our Facebook is Asia Pacific Policy Society and our Twitter is at Apps Policy Forum. When is your podcast going to come out? It's next Friday. Oh, that's super exciting. So if you have any questions for Sean or if you have any feedback from this podcast, please let us know. Um, Thank you for listening to this podcast and thank you, Sean, for coming in. Thank you. Make sure you tune in next week for another insightful pod. And that's all from me, Maya. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.